Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Liz Willen. She's the editor-in-chief of The Heckender Report, an independent, nonprofit, and award-winning newsroom that covers inequality and innovation in education. In the last few months, we've been hearing about how difficult it is to get into elite colleges and how far wealthy parents are willing to go to help their children get in. None of that is actually surprising, but it misses the real problem with higher education. Access. Fewer than 1% of children from the bottom fifth income level of American families attend elite colleges. Black adults are only two-thirds as likely to hold college degrees as whites, while Latinos, the fastest growing largest ethnic minority in the U.S., are only half as likely. That's recent data from the Education Trust. Education is supposed to be the great equalizer in our society. And if we're sorting out the poor, the black, the Latino, the people who can't afford it at such an early age and only funneling the wealthiest into the most elite schools, that has great implications for boardrooms, for law firms, for medical schools, for all ranges of society in years to come. We'll be talking about the crisis and who's attending and completing college and ways to make higher education, whether it's community college or an elite college, more widely accessible to all Americans. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. I'm very happy to be here. You are interested in educational equity, and you argue that we should be discussing acclimation at elite colleges instead of the college admission scandal. Tell us more. That's exactly the point I've been trying to make for years and years of reporting on this topic. I spent a long weekend at Dartmouth where a student I was following who had attended a charter school in Boston was admitted against many, many odds. He was the son of a single mother. He was Latino and black. He felt very isolated. The whole story uh, really detailed his struggles, being at a CVS with another student and been told, what are you doing here? Being kicked out of a frat party because he was told he didn't belong there. And so I think if these kinds of inequalities are exacerbated in the college experience and in the high school experience and in the highly segregated schools we have in this country, it makes it harder for a society to bring in all kinds of viewpoints and all kinds of backgrounds. And his discomfort at that campus really crystallized for me how much this conversation is tilting in the wrong direction. Right. The discussion about how to gain access is very limited, right? Their end goal is to get into college, and that doesn't solve the problem of integrating the diversity that we have in this country. Well, more than half of American students actually attend community colleges. It's a little-known fact, but most of the dialogue and the conversation and even the popular culture is about getting in. We've seen this with the admission scandal, the length to what parents will do. Just a sense of, hey, we've got to do this to get into these schools. And since we have a college completion crisis and access crisis in this country, these stories bring more attention to how imbalanced and unfair the system is and how weighted it is towards those who can afford the extra help, the SAT prep, and in these cases, the actual out-and-out bribes. But it does tell us something about what our society perceives as being important and a key to financial success down the line. What some aspects of our society believe. Right. Some. 
So let's talk about the educational inequity when it comes to an elite college and a community college. Because for sure, coming out of community college will not give you the same kind of leg up in terms of your income in the long run. No, but a lot of community colleges are working hard on something called transfer agreements. And uh, the Jack Ken Cook Foundation is one of those foundations that's pushing hard for students who go to community colleges to transfer into better options, and in many cases, Ivy League options. I've been working with the filmmaker of a terrific film called Personal Statement, and it highlights a student from Brooklyn who had trouble getting into elite schools despite having terrific grades and and being um, incredibly articulate and hardworking. She went to the kind of high school where she didn't have much help or guidance counseling at all. She also didn't have the kind of parental help that would encourage tutoring and getting into certain schools. There's a scene where she's on the way after being rejected by some of her top choices to Borough of Manhattan Community College where she's welcomed with open arms and where she can afford to make the payments. And suddenly there is a sense of opportunity to become upwardly mobile and to make her way into society in ways that the elite colleges slam the door shut on her. That's a really hopeful story, actually, because I think there is this idea that going to community college is just not really worth it, you know, that it is a closed door in a way that you have just debunked very efficiently. But what is the role of need-blind admissions at elite colleges? Because you just mentioned that she was welcome with open arms, but also that she could afford it. Well, the tuition at a community college is just far, far more reasonable. But I think one of the issues that we really wanted to be getting at that we didn't before is that enrollment at 38 colleges in America is comprised of more students from the top 1% than the bottom 60%. The highest achieving students from the wealthiest families are three times as likely to enroll in one of these highly selective schools as their peers from the poorest families. That's 24 versus 8%. And so we have this inequality crisis in terms of who's getting into these schools and who's attending them. And more and more in our reporting, we have been finding that the rich are so much more overly represented on these campuses. And yes, you asked about need-blind aid, but only a few colleges really can afford to have a need-blind admissions policy. Many of them say they'd like to, and they give it lip service, but the reality is the only way for colleges to raise revenue is through tuition, and so they need X percent of full-paying students so that they can give aid to others. And also, when people give big gifts, it's not always earmarked to financial aid. They want a library in their name or a beautiful new science building. The elite schools don't have the means to accept the kind of students who might come from a more disadvantaged background. Right. The reality is that they also need to make their ends meet, and otherwise they're not a viable institution. Yep. So that's a tricky thing. One of the things that is an effort to make an elite college more accessible is the adversity index that the college board just announced. That's right. The nonprofit board, they administer the SAT exam to millions of students, and they said they're going to now include an adversity index using data it has gathered to make the system fairer, and they're going to be factoring in the student's socioeconomic background. And these are factors that could range from the poverty level and crime rate in a student's neighborhood to the information about the high school the student attends, the student's environment. So that could include uh, the median family income of a neighborhood, the percentage of households on food 
stamps, the percentage of single-parent families, yielding an overall disadvantage score. And a score above 50 would indicate that students who come from disadvantaged communities and environments would indicate that's where they come from. Under 50 indicates a student who come from a place of privilege. There are people who believe this makes a lot of sense. We read an op-ed this week from a man who described his career now in Texas is is all about getting more access for Latinos into college, and he believes it makes sense. He described his own experience of being rejected from a college and driving all the way up and talking to the president and talking his way in and how it entirely changed his life. I've been following a the letters to the editor and some of the tweets on this and some of the reaction. And this is one of the most cynical ones today that I saw was that the next thing you're going to see are people photoshopping pictures of their children next to garbage cans and homeless shelters so that they can boost their adversity score to get in. Of course, it's also bringing along a lot of conversation about why don't we just eliminate these tests altogether because we know the scores can be improved so much by tutoring. Right. This really makes me question one more time the money aspect. Let's say you have the adversity score and it shows that you are from an underprivileged neighborhood background and you get in to the elite college. But then if there isn't any money for you to attend, then it's all the same. Well, that's a great point about Two years ago, I spent a whole year following a bunch of students at a charter school in Boston. I followed them through the admissions process from start to finish. They were all poor and minority students. Of the six I followed, five were going to be the first in their family to go to college. They didn't have a lot of help at home. They had a a very good guidance counselor at this charter school. That was the difference. It didn't have the typical ratio, which is over 450 to 1. She spent a lot of time. There were entire classes about getting into college. There were some volunteers that came and gave them help with negotiating the financial aid forms. There were some planned visits to college. There was a lot of emphasis, but most of the students very sadly experienced a huge gap in the amount of financial aid they got and what they were able to afford. So, for example, say a student got into a private school where the tuition was about $62,000. Maybe they got a $30,000 a year scholarship. They didn't have the means for the rest of that. So many of them ended up at either a community college or a state university or UMass Boston or something nearby. There were a lot of dreams crushed during that story, and it was really sad to see. Because on the one hand, the college says, this is great news, you're getting a 50000 a year scholarship, and then the student's family still has to come up with the, the living expenses and the meals and the dorms and the books and the clothing and the transportation, and the math didn't add up. So that brings us back, I think, to this whole idea of acclimation. Because even if you make it, let's say you can scrounge together the money to live on campus and eat and have books, all this is very expensive. How can we make that work for the student where he or she is then successful at school? Because it's pretty stressful to be low income at an elite university. I recently heard a report where the student got a full ride scholarship, but he could not afford books. And because he never had any counseling while he was there, he didn't know he could go to the library and check the books out. Yeah, these are really important 
questions, and I'd like to direct you to a book that I just finished and I highly recommend. It's called The Privileged Poor, How Elite Colleges Are Failing Disadvantaged Students. It's by Anthony Abraham Jack. He was a poor kid growing up in Florida. He got into Amherst College. He was a smart kid. He realized right away as a poor black student on that campus many years ago, he felt very isolated, and he made it his life's work. He became a sociologist to study this inequality that he felt and lived with every single day. He spends a lot of time talking about students who are hungry and cafeterias that close while the wealthier students go off to their island vacations and their ski trips and their country houses. And there are scenes of students like sort of hoarding things from the cafeteria to get them through these tough times. He is advocating for changes to do a much better idea of equality once they get to campus. He wants them to stop working. He points out many instances where they're working in cafeterias and cleaning bathrooms of the wealthy. And the book is filled with interviews from the students themselves. And it's really heartbreaking and also eye-opening. One quote from the book is said, poor students on scholarship who are supposed to be equal in the classroom instead find themselves scrubbing the bathrooms of rich students serving, quote-unquote, as personal maids for their peers. It's time for all colleges and universities to rethink such programs. Others are saying, uh, instead, what we need to do is get rid of the SAT because that's one of the big ways that inequality is exacerbated right from the start, even before students set foot in any of these colleges. Right. Although the SAT, I think, is just the one icing. <laughs> icing on the cake, right? Because the reality is that education and equity starts pretty early uh, and they go through life going to not very good schools. So then they don't really have the same educational base, uh, the yeah, same it, academic base that some kids from better schools do. Right. It's not an equal playing field. I, I do have to say this about the tests, though. There is a big option. There is now increasingly a push for test optional schools. Bates and Bowdoin College in Maine were the first to go test optional. And a lot of excellent colleges are no longer requiring SAT or ACTs. So students have the option. They can submit them if they want. But if they are not happy with their scores, or if they choose not to submit them, they won't. There's a little bit of a danger in that because in many cases, high test scores equal merit scholarships. We have found over and over again that merit aid is increasingly going to the wealthy. But we are seeing some shifts in strategies. Some colleges are doing more to help students from lower moderate income families. And these are moves that create a lot of headlines, but it's not going to change the fact that high-achieving students from low-income families still have no more chance of graduating from college than do low-achievers from high-income families. And that's the crisis that I think we really have to address, not just a few schools doing this or a few schools doing that. So what is your vision for the future? What would it look like if actually we had not only better access, but we had better acclimation and we had more or less, let's say, a representative student body of our society? Well, one thing that we do, we examine them by going out and doing stories. That's at the Heckinger Report. And we're all over the country. You can read our stories and everything from the Washington Post and the New York Times to the Mississippi Clarion Ledger. We had a very interesting discussion about it in our meeting this week about whether or not the SAT should probably just be eliminated or possibly just be eliminated. What would that look like? Because you're having a lot of opinions about the inequities around the SAT because of the income disparities and, and the, the, the correlation between who scores well and who does not. And there's definitely 
big income correlations. If we eliminated that test entirely, what would that look like for higher education? It's a really interesting question, and I think we're going to be exploring that in some stories in the weeks and months to come. Since you do a lot of reporting on the ground, which is fantastic, what have you seen that really works well in terms of creating higher odds for equity for low-income students? Isolated programs, I would say, more than anything else. What is that? There are a lot of programs that offer scholarships and one-on-one tutoring to really help students who need it most from low-income backgrounds who wouldn't have any other advantages. They get aid and they get the kind of preparation and encouragement and experience they need to get into some of these schools or to get into better schools or to get into college in the first place. So I I think isolated programs help, but they're small and they're drops in the bucket and they don't address the larger societal issues Fewer than 1% of children from the bottom fifth income level of American families attend elite colleges. Black adults are only two-thirds as likely to hold college degrees as whites, while Latinos, the fastest-growing largest ethnic minority in the U.S., are only half as likely. That's recent data from the Education Trust. Education is supposed to be the great equalizer in our society. And if we're sorting out the poor the black, the Latino, the people who can't afford it at such an early age and only funneling the wealthiest into the most elite schools, that has great implications for boardrooms, for law firms, for medical schools, for all ranges of society in years to come. Yes, I agree 100%. If I want to get more involved in educational equity, what are two things that I can do now to move the needle? Well, one thing you can do, and I don't mean to sound self-serving, but you can sign up for the Heckinger Report newsletter and follow us. Our website is www.heckingerreport.org. Sign up for our newsletter. It's free. One of the reasons we feel like it's so important to talk about the problems is because if we don't talk about them, no one in our society is going to bother trying to solve them. So we don't create the solutions, but we like to highlight things that work. We also use a lot of student voices on our site because we want people to hear from the students themselves. We spend our time you know, on campuses and classrooms around the country. But I also think it's really important to look back to some of the roots of inequality in our country. You know, this week was the 65th anniversary of Brown v. Board of Education, and we're finding on the level of below higher education, examples of schools and school districts all over the country that remain highly segregated. Here in New York City, we have one of the most segregated school systems in the country. So we really have to think about where we live, what schools we choose for our children, how do we work hard in the public school systems if we are part of them to help others and to improve the schools that everyone goes to. So I think following it, reading up about it, thinking about your own choices and thinking about what works is really important. You're super passionate, clearly, and you've been in this field for a long time. What is the source of your passion? Well, I think it's about education being the great equalizer. I've covered a lot of things as a reporter, but when I the minute I got onto the education beat, I thought you have everything a writer, a young writer could want to be interested in the beginning. You have societal change. You have sociological differences. You have inequality. Covering the New York City school system for many years, we had crime. We had politics. We had battles over sex education. All of those things, you know, are the things that you cover. But what it's really about in our society is 
this whole great equalizer. Uh, my parents were the children of immigrants, and they both attended CUNY schools at the University of New York, which at that time were free. And their lives changed immeasurably as a result, as did many, many others. If you look at the roster of who attended um, City College and Hunter and, and some of those other uh, schools that for so many years were affordable to a, a growing immigrant population and see what they've become, you are reminded once again of the great ways that education can equalize society or better equalize society. Last question. Sure. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? The fact that we're talking about it makes me very hopeful. Because like I said earlier, if no one's talking about the problems, no one's going to bother solving them. And as awful as this SAT scandal is, it has definitely brought huge attention on the lengths that parents will go through to get their kids into schools and what happens to those who don't have their advantages. I, I watched a video of one of the fathers who was apologizing for his behavior this week. And what was interesting, he apologized to his daughter. He also apologized to all of the students who are working hard and don't have those kinds of advantages and can't access institutions that could change their lives dramatically. But when you really think about it, if we start talking about it, what it's like for these students to try and navigate the school system without guidance counselors and without resources at home, you will see that there's the seeds of change coming in terms of people wanting to talk about the issue of fairness and inequality and our role and what we can do about it. Excellent. Thank you very, very much. Thank you for your time. Thank you. I loved learning that community colleges really do deliver on the promise of offering upward mobility, debunking misconception that I had myself. And it's terrific that transfer agreements make it possible for high-achieving students to go on to great schools. Still, it's clear now that education is not the great equalizer, and I'm not surprised that students from well-to-do families are more likely to go to college and more likely to go to elite ones at that. And I was really, really disappointed to discover that high-achieving students from low-income families still don't have a better chance of graduating from college than low-achievers from high-income families. It's gut-wrenching to know that the brilliant kids on scholarship are often not able to take full advantage of the opportunities before them. And if that's the case, then how should we rethink education, the purpose it's meant to serve for the students and its role in our society? If we want a world that is more equitable, then access to high-quality education in the earliest years, well before college, must be a priority. Next week, our guest is Jonathan Lamontagne. He's a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Tufts who just published a study on robust abatement pathways to tolerable climate futures and that it requires immediate global action. We'll be talking about his study, the costs of climate abatement for both tolerable climate and economic conditions and the narrow window we still have for action. In, in the media, there seems to be this 
undercurrent of not necessarily climate denial, but the sense that because there's so much uncertainty about both the climate system and the human economic systems and how those two systems will interact, that we really ought not to take action until those systems and their interactions are better understood. From a robustness perspective, this really struck us as somewhat upside down. When you're dealing with a system that's highly uncertain and the consequences of being wrong are terrible, it's really a call to be more conservative in your actions, that you really ought to act even if you're not sure whether or not you need to act because the consequences of inaction are terrible. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Thank you.